0: Uh, Every single time I consult with a CEO, we go through their to-do list. We form a to-do list and go through it. And we find that 99% of the things on the to-do list really are are better found in someone else's job description. And the three things that the CEO alone can do never shows up on the to-do list. And so we spend time, sometimes a year going through a process to, to right that ship, you know, to, to, to put that 80-20 back together in the right way. So it's not that I don't think that people have to-do lists to get done during the day and you got to send an email, you got to check up on an unhappy customer or something of that nature. Of course, that's it. I win the battle when I can get a CEO to say, uh, before I do any of that stuff, I'm going to positively touch uh, my culture. I'm going to positively positively influence someone, some person in my organization, and I'm going to do something that makes our numbers uh, better, right? If I can get them doing those three things, then the to-do list is yours. You choose how much to go on it and 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 not, right? And what we find over the course of a year is that that people trend those to-do lists, and they very effectively learn the skills of delegation so that the right people are doing the right tasks in the organization. So,
1: Welcome to the Rockstars Rocking Podcast, powered by Voluntary Disruption, a show dedicated to people who are crushing their business and life goals. These are bite-sized conversations with leading rock stars in their respective industry who are pumped to share their story to help drive you to the next level. So are you ready to rock? Speaking of rock stars, here's your host, Eric Silverman. Hey, Rockstars. Welcome back to another episode of Rockstars Rockin', where I only have the Rockstars in any industry who are crushing life, business, and their personal goals. And I'm so fired up, so excited. to have a good friend of mine, uh, the managing director of Trinity Blue, which is a consulting firm out of Georgia. And he is the author of A CEO Only Does Three Things. We're going to dig into all of that and more on this week's edition of rock stars rockin welcome trey taylor what's up trey eric my brother good to see you man hey man good to be seen not viewed i hope all is well if you don't mind i uh i mean i can talk to you anytime i want to dig into some questions and and get these listeners some uh really juicy insights on your life and uh and frankly how they can be better ceos of their business and their life is that okay with you
0: yeah, I don't know that I have a juicy life, but uh, let's dig in and we'll see where we go. But uh, definitely talk about the book and, uh, and some other things and see if we can drop a little wisdom over here.
1: Absolutely. Try, drop a little wisdom bombs on everybody. So let me actually start because um, I'm, I'm curious. So you, um, you, you, you wrote this book. Uh, uh, I think you started it over the course of the last year or two. Um, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was kind of started off of a big, uh, keynote presentation, which I've had the, the, pr- the, pleasure and privilege of, of watching you live in person deliver, uh, multiple times at this point. Again, for those listening, this, the book is called a CEO only does three things. I'm with the author, a good friend of mine, Trey Taylor he talks about finding your focus in the c-suite. Um, and my God, the forward of the book. you guys ready for this? The forward of the book is written by Shark Tank's uh, own Kevin Harrington, uh, the inventor of the infomercial, if I got that correct. So yeah. um, tell me, Trey, h- how did this turn into a book? Mm-hmm. came from a keynote uh, turned to a book?
0: It did, man. you were present at the creation really because I you know I gave the opening keynote for the Ascend conference one year. And, uh, you know, as I started to plan that, I I said, who's going to be in the room and, you know, what is it that I think they should be doing in their businesses? And these were friends of ours. We were, you know, we were uh, colleagues with the people in the room. And, you know, I was one of that number. And when I stood up, I wanted them to know what I knew about running a business. and, And I had a lot of people come up to me afterwards saying, can I get a copy of that video? And you should write a book or a magazine article or something of that nature. So... I sat down and, you know, writing a book is a, is a labor. It really is. But I sat down and, and, and really sort of fleshed it out. And it was pretty simple. It was a five paragraph essay, you know, introduction, conclusion, and three points. And the three points are what are three things a CEO should be doing. And, uh, and so it morphed from there and then pandemic hit. And I said, look, I've got this whole year that I'm going to sit around doing nothing unless I choose to do something. And so I opened up the word processor and, and I banged it out and I got the publisher involved and an editor and all of that sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, at the end of the year, they finally said, OK, we're going live with this thing. And it, uh, it came out in November of, uh, of 2020 and it's done super well since then. So it's got a message. It's an easy read. It's a short read. And people can get their minds around the, the concepts pretty easily. So uh, from that standpoint, it's been a hit.
1: Well, I, uh, I I feel honored uh, to be your friend, seriously, because you gave me a copy of the book way early. And uh, I told you what I thought about it. And you yeah. were uh, even kind enough to put it in the book. So I made the book, guys. You hear that? Yeah. I'm in- the book. Um, so l- let's dig into the book a little bit, and we're going to talk about other things you're working on, and talk about your background too. But I want to dig right in. So um, in the book, you talk about um, three things, of course. But before you get to those three things, and we'll talk about them, um, you talk about the psychology of a CEO. Can you kind of give us a a quick um, a quick snippet of of what that means?
0: Yeah, I think the point um, you know that that people might miss is uh, when you come into a leadership. Uh, role, uh, you, you want to bring your old psychology with you. And uh, unfortunately, to lead people, you have to understand people. And to understand people, you have to understand yourself, right? So how does psychology work? How, how do people work? How do, how do we function? What motivates us? Uh, those kinds of things. And so I, I was very fortunate to have uh, a real rock star of a mentor who, who just passed last year uh, or two, a couple of years ago now. Uh, Ron Willingham. And Ron founded a company called Integrity Systems where he taught integrity-based selling. And uh, he, he, he and I wrote a book called Authenticity. Uh, uh, there it is right there, which I gift uh, very frequently, a really fabulous book there. And he, Ron had 2 million people go through his courses around the world throughout his career. And one of the things uh, among very many one of the things uh, that Ron gave me was this workable psychological model. And and it goes like this. We are all created in three dimensions. We have an intellectual dimension that we call the I think. We have an emotional dimension that we call the I feel. And, And Ron's particular genius was labeling this third dimension in a way that it made sense to people. We have an identity dimension that we call the I am dimension. And in that I am dimension, we hold our beliefs about how the world works how we fit into that who we are who we are not you know our values all of those kinds of things and so when you're leading people if you're only leading them from the intellectual uh, front then then you're missing the emotional side of things and and you're missing the the identity side of things and the great leaders of the world are those that speak to our identities and uh and so i thought that that would be super interesting that if ceos could could frame that and to really work those um, lenses into their spectacles, if you will, that the quality of leadership was going to go through the roof. And uh, and the clients of mine that have uh, perfected that—mutual friends of ours, uh, Jim Blochik, Deb Alt, uh, Scott Cantrell—you know those guys that have really worked on that side of themselves. Their teams are happier, more productive, and uh, you know the stress in their lives from leading people uh, has eased off. So. Uh, I think it's a very good model, a very strong model for us to to emulate.
1: So for those that uh, didn't pick that up and, and you're listening to the podcast anywhere podcasts are uh, consumed, uh, if you're not watching this on our YouTube channel, I'm holding up a copy of the book he just talked about by Ron Willingham, Authenticity, uh, the, the Head, Heart and Soul of Selling. Um, Trey, uh, he wasn't kidding. He gifts it often. He sent me a Christmas gift a couple of years ago. I'm holding up his uh, family Christmas card um and uh when he mentioned it i was like wait a second i got that right behind me on the bookshelf so yeah another- it's a great book uh i imagine trey they can find it on amazon yes
0: i think it is still on amazon yeah i know uh ron has passed but uh the publisher uh i'm sure is keeping that book uh, alive it, it was selling very well before he passed on
1: awesome awesome so you can pick that up authenticity by ron willingham as well as we're talking with trey taylor as ceo only does three things. You can certainly pick that up on Amazon, Uh, the E edition for your tablet or your iPhone. You can pick it up uh, a hard copy, which I recommend. It's a very good book. Or if you want, save a few bucks, by all means, go ahead and get the paper uh, edition. Uh, Trey, I think you'd agree any edition is a good edition, correct?
0: I- anyone racks up a sale for me, so I a- appreciate that, of course. But yeah, I mean, the whole point of writing a book you know, is to get that message out there and, right. and see if it can impact somebody's life. You know, That's the greatest thing. E- Eric, I got a LinkedIn uh, a couple of weeks ago from a CEO in Italy,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and he said, I got a copy of your book because I read this article that was published in an Italian a European, you know, publication about the ten best books for CEOs. Yep. Uh, and and yours was number one on the list, and I bought it and I read it, and I just want to thank you because my team is so much happier that I'm not trying to do everybody's job now. You know, there so you that's exactly why you write a book. That's the greatest uh, feeling when somebody says, "Hey, I took an idea and made made my life or somebody's life a little bit better."
1: Well, you you wrote a book in the pandemic to occupy your time. I started a podcast. Um, I think they're both good uses of our time. Absolutely, so man. Side yeah. note, I, I can't wait to see uh, your new podcast. I'm giving you a hint, hint. Uh, so I don't think, <laughs> I don't know if he has one in the works audience, but, uh, Do not. but I think he would make a great host. Um, Trey, let's dig into um, number one in the order of which the book is set up. With the three things a uh, CEO CEO does, the only three things a CEO does, Um, and you talk about culture. Can you talk about culture just for a couple minutes here?
0: Yeah, and let me frame a little bit because people hear this and they say, uh, "I do way more than three things. What are you talking about? This guy doesn't know how to be a CEO, right?" And 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 the message here is that every single time I consult, I do executive coaching at the CEO level. uh, Every single time I consult with a CEO we go through their to-do list, we form a to-do list and go through it. And we find that 99% of the things on the to-do list really are are better found in someone else's job description. And the three things that the CEO alone can do never shows up on the to-do list. And so we spend time, sometimes a year, going through a process to to write that ship you know to, to to put that 80 20 back together in the right way so it's not that i don't think that people have to-do lists to get done during the day and you got to send an email you got to check up on an unhappy customer or something of that nature of course that's it i win the battle when i can get a ceo to say uh before i do any of that stuff i'm going to positively touch uh, my culture i'm going to positively positively influence someone, some person in my organization and I'm going to do something that makes our numbers uh, better, right? If I can get them doing those three things, then the to-do list is yours. You choose how much to go on it and 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 not, right? And what we find over the course of a year is that that people trend those to-do lists and they very effectively learn the skills of delegation so that the right people are doing the right tasks in the organization. So sorry to be long-winded on that, but that's how we start off with everything, and the and the first thing that we start with. But again, you don't have to start with this. When we do the consulting, we really look to see where the problems are, uh, and and where we can get some easy, quick wins. Usually, that is in terms of the culture. So, uh, what what is culture? Right? It's a buzzword, and um, uh, you know everybody says, "Oh, we have the greatest culture," that sort of thing. Culture. The best definition I have is culture is the uh, is the ethical environment in which we live, work and play in and the ethical environment means the values based environment. What do we think is true or should be true in the world? And how do we want to interact with those things? That's what culture is and culture shows up in the behaviors of your people. So, you know, you can't be right behind Eric. If you're running an enrollment or you're, you know, somebody's running a production line or something of that nature. You can't stand behind every single employee and say, I want you to do, click this button and I want you to do this faster and that sort of thing 24 seven a day. You don't wanna do that. Your employees definitely don't want you to do that. But how are you going to be involved to make sure that they make the right choice every single time? And the answer that we give is culture. If the culture is right, it shows up in the behaviors of your people and they make the right decisions.
1: I like that. I like that. And you know, you're you're right. Culture is a buzzword that we've heard a lot over the last uh, handful of years. So I like how you break it down here. And most certainly break it down in the book. Um, Let's dig into uh, let's dig into the next one, which I think um, perfectly aligns with culture, of course, and that's people. Um, Now, I broadly say people as a word here, uh, based on the book. uh, But give us some, uh, some, some, some background behind that.
0: Yeah, so the the people aspect is is the hardest aspect of all of it, right? So if you get the culture right, if you say like, look, these are the things that we believe, these are our values, and we want to work with people that hold these values, Um, then you've got a selections issue. You've got good people coming in who may not hold the same values. So you have to make a really tough decision as a CEO not to work with those people and uh, that stuff. Even tougher, sometimes when you get the values framed out, you will notice that usually uh, one of your star performers uh, gets away with murder because they put up big numbers or whatever, and they don't participate in the culture whatsoever. And the sharper you make the culture, the less that person will feel like they can be a part of the story, and you may lose that person. So we see that kind of thing. So uh, people is really all about uh, selecting who's going to be on the journey with you. And, uh, and if, if we're all honest, uh, we can probably remember a time in the last three weeks where we went to bed as CEOs, uh, totally preoccupied with something that a, a person had done or said. And, um, and, and so the upshot of the processes that we have in the consulting practice enshrined in the book there is, you know, how, do we, how do we smooth those rough edges uh, off of managing people, selecting people? And putting people at the right level in the organization—that's the real key of the process.
1: You're you're so spot on when it comes to. Uh... Uh, salespeople and the top managers and salespeople. Yeah, you know, I mean, I did it. I'll fall on my own sword, good, bad or indifferent. I managed 1000s of people in my old carrier days. Uh, Many people have heard me say I'm a recovering carrier rep. And boy, did I do it. I mean, my cardinal rule that I told my managers was you got a top salesperson, leave them alone. Don't touch them. Ask yeah. them if they need anything and just support the ever-loving you-know-what out of them. Um, but don't uh, don't worry about them. Don't micromanage them. Um, but you're right. It, it certainly affects the culture. Uh, it
0: totally does. I, I had a job at uh, Earthlink, which was an ISP that was formed between a merger of t- sort of an East Coast and a West Coast ISP I together. Earthlink, Earthlink? yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so I was a corporate development guy there. And I, I'm telling you, man, I don't know why they let me stick around because I was so counterculture. I was so lone wolf. Um, You know, I was amazing at the job, which is probably why they let me stick around. But um, as far as being just a, you know, a needle uh, in somebody's throat all the time, that was me. And uh, knowing now what I know, you know, and I wish that boss had known it at that point, they should have canned me and sent me right out the front (laughs) door, man. Uh, Because I was putting up huge numbers. I think my sort of my quota was like 250,000 a year. And I did a $28 million deal. You know, it was those kinds of uh, scale. And I was I felt like I was stuck in the bottom of the organization, I had all this stuff to prove. And I thought I was doing the right thing. But one lone jerk cannot change the culture for the good for everybody. And uh, unfortunately, we kind of accept that bill of goods uh, from our high performers sometimes.
1: Yeah, that's so true. Um, listen, for everybody uh, who's here, a reminder we're talking to Trey Taylor, uh, author extraordinaire, best selling author, a CEO only does three things finding your focus in the C suite. The foreword of the book, gang, is written by Shark Tank's Kevin. Harrington if you remember the first season of shark Tank Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial uh, and all the the handy da- uh, uh, gadgets and gizmos that are most definitely floating around my house probably Trey's house and yeah. uh, probably your house uh, as well um, Trey let's dig into the third thing that a CEO only does and that is talks about are you talk about the numbers so um, that confused me at first to be very honest mm-hmm. so maybe you can shed light on it I don't know if I'm the only one who might say that but I I always thought the C, the numbers were based on the cfo the chief financial right. officer so either i'm ignorant or i'm exactly the audience you're trying to educate
0: yeah so it's it's a it's a closely held conviction of mine that the ceo sets the agenda on these three things because he's the only one that sees all three of them from the same perspective right so do i want the ceo sort of running month-end reports and And wondering about balancing a cash account or something of that nature? Absolutely not. You have finance people for that. But do I want the CEO ultimately determining what numbers we are going to count, what we're going to do when we count them, and what they mean for us contextually? I do. So those are not only hard numbers. Those can also be soft numbers. So I have a goal every year. I have a couple of soft number goals every year. Number one, I read 100 books a year. Right? As a CEO, I think my job is to be the most educated person that I ever come across. And so one of the ways that I do that is um, uh, I, I read a whole bunch, right? So that's a soft number. Does anybody else even track that number or know about it? No, they don't. The other thing that we do is I write 500 uh, thank you cards a year. That's a goal that I have. I want those, uh, those thank you cards going to um, high performers in the organization, I send them to families of people. Um, You're not talking about um,
1: emails or texts. You're talking no, about no, no, handwritten no, no. notes.
0: Handwritten notes, absolutely. Uh, because you know that impacts people, people like it. Uh, so we do those kinds of things. Those are soft numbers. Now, if I don't hit those goals every year or if I don't report out against those numbers every year, does my business sell less? Do I make less money or something of that nature? No, but there are soft numbers that the CEO sets for the organization as a whole that are just as important as the hard numbers. And so we, we, wanna, we wanna have that as a, as, a, as a starting off point that there's an agenda setting item that that's the CEO's job. Number two is being transparent about what the numbers are and what they mean contextually for the organization. I tell a story in the book in 2008, right? I could see the storm coming because any, anybody could have. And I said to the organization as a whole, I said, guys, I'm really worried that we're going to have a lot of clients go out of business. And if we have the wrong clients go out of business, our business is really going to be hurt, potentially crippled, potentially close the doors. I don't know. But my job is to be transparent. It's not to hide that information from you and enlist you in the solution. And one of the things I need help on is I think we spend too much money and we need to trim some expenses. Who's got an idea of what expenses we can trim? And we had this wonderful conversation. The very first thing that came out of the conversation was that the walk-around people in my office didn't know what profit margin really meant. They didn't know. They thought if we made a dollar, Trey took a dollar home that night. You know, <laughs> and so they needed to be um, um, they needed to be educated on those things. And so when we educated everybody on them, the upshot of what they were able to bring back save the organization $200,000 in, in, in unneeded expenses the following year, which allowed us to retool a lot of things. That's around the time, a couple of years after that, that we really started getting uh, focused on having better systems. We had money then to buy a lot of software and those kinds of things solely because of that one afternoon's exercise. So the idea there is that Yes, the CFO is supposed to run the numbers, interpret the numbers, that sort of thing, but he does so under the guidance of a transparent CEO who says, this is what we're going to track, and this is what it means to you all the way down to the receptionist in the organization. Everybody knows the numbers.
1: So you're, you're sitting here talking about transparency many years ago. I feel like transparency is another big buzzword that we've only kind of recently heard of in the last many, uh, many months or even handful of years or so. Um, nobody really talked about that back when you're, ta- when you're telling this story. So um, you're, uh, you're, you're ahead of the curve by, by a long mile there, Trey.
0: <laughs> well, necessity, some other of invention for sure, because I really was looking at things and saying, I, I'm, I'm worried about how this is going to turn out. Um, and so we do that on a monthly basis. Now we have an all hands on a monthly basis. And we review the very first thing we do in the morning is we, we share some positive words and then we go straight to the numbers. We, we call it, um, you know, let's do the numbers. That's the section of the presentation. And, and everybody in the organization is there. My group sales assistant is there and she sees what the voluntary production was for the, for the previous month. Or she sees how many leads were opened in the lead system. And, you know, those kinds of things. Everybody sees everything. The only thing, and I have some clients that, that feel a little bit sharper about this than I do, I don't necessarily publish Trey's salary, you know, is this number, right? But we have a bucket for salaries so that people understand that we, we take a dollar in and some of that money goes to pay the salaries of the people in the room, of course. So you can dial up and down according to your sensitivity. Now, with my organization, I wouldn't care. I could put my salary up there all day long. That that wouldn't affect the operations of the business, I don't think. But some people feel a little bit um, um, sensitive about that. So for those clients, we don't dial it into that, that level of specificity, and they still get great results from it.
1: Yeah. Well, look, so for everybody listening, he just mentioned the word uh, voluntary sales. For those that don't know, uh, Trey's, uh, he's got multiple businesses. Trey's, one of his uh, very successful businesses is in the insurance employee benefits world in the industry, in the insurance world known as quote unquote voluntary. Trey knows I hate that term, Um, but uh, but nonetheless, that's still what the industry calls it. Uh, But Trey, you weren't necessarily, maybe you were, I don't think you were born to sell insurance and to run, per <laughs> se, an insurance agency or an insurance company or a benefits company. Um, talk about how you got got started in the benefits world, the insurance world, uh, which led you to be the CEO of, um, of your company now. I mean, you have a law degree, for heaven's sake. So talk about that. How did you end up in the insurance world?
0: Yeah, so my grandfather founded the company in 1954. He was in the industry for for several years, and then he started his own thing in 1968. So we're at 50, what's that, 54 years, 53 years this year. Um, And, uh, you know, he started uh, going door to door, selling insurance, that kind of thing could be done in the 50s, you know, and, and he made, he was amazed by how much money he could make. My grandfather didn't finish the ninth grade. You know, he literally was the son of a sharecropper. Uh, that sort of uh, origin story for him, uh, you know, still uh, forms a part of the ethos of of the environment that we have. Our culture is, you know, you you work hard as if there's no dollar coming tomorrow and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's still part of it. My dad actually bought that business from him in the late 90s. And then my dad passed away in 2005, super unexpectedly, he was 52 years old. Eric, I don't know if you know this, but he he died of SARS right? He died of COVID.
1: I knew he passed we, away, but I had not heard of that.
0: Yeah, we just didn't know at that point. Like uh, we pulled his uh, death certificate out and it said, you know, it was cardiac problems created by his, his uh, SARS infection. So oh my gosh. Um, yeah, so we kind of have been dealing with that for a, a little while there. I came home at that point because uh, we didn't really have a good succession plan. And, and by coming home, what do I mean? Uh, Dad had said to me uh, growing up, like, don't do what I do for a living. Like it's too hard, you know, the entrepreneurial life, the business owner life, it's just too hard. Don't do what I do for a living. Go become a professional. Go become a doctor or a lawyer or something of that nature, you know, or an engineer. Those were my three options. And then he saw my SAT scores and he says, Okay, you're gonna be a you're gonna be a lawyer, right? Because my science and math were were terrible at that point, but my verbal was near perfect. So uh, then that's you know, we pretty much knew that's where I was headed. So I went to law school, and I came out of law school uh, during the first internet bubble. And uh, I started uh, in house with a company that that very quickly after that became WebMD. So I was one of the first hundred employees at WebMD, and uh, it was a wild ride, man. It was a uh, it was like getting a graduate degree in how to you know structure corporate transactions and all that sort of stuff. In the twelve to twenty four months that I spent there, I was there about twenty months. Um, we bought seventy four companies. We did the uh, largest private placement of equity in U.S. financial history up until last year. Um, You know, just these massive deals. And when I say we, I mean me as the effectively as the intern or the young guy on the team, one or two other guys in house. And maybe we had some outside uh, counsel, but that was the that was the block. You know, that's what we were doing. And, uh, and it was really fun and, and uh, so I left there and went into the venture business and that's what I was doing uh, up until 9-11. 9-11 happened, it, it cratered the uh, venture industry, um, we were out trying to raise our second fund, it just wasn't happening so we all had to quit and go get real jobs, that's where I found myself at Earthlink and then went to work at AOL uh, doing defestitures um, when you know I got the call that my dad had uh, had, had gotten very sick very quickly and uh, probably wasn't going to make it. So I came home at that point to run the family firm.
1: Wow. Well, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if you're a believer, and many of the listeners may or may not be, but there is a saying that everything happens for a reason. So uh, you've taken on the reins of the insurance employee benefits world by uh, a family business, and you've grown it uh, as far as I've seen, You've grown it far and wide. So uh, it's working. you were you were born for insurance and employee benefits, Trey, whether you knew it or not, my friend.
0: <laughs> well, we've you know I've been blessed in the team. Because the team, I came in and said very transparently, I don't know this industry. It won't, I'll I'll learn it. It won't take me long. Okay. But you guys have got to handle things while I'm doing this. My brother was in the company. I had other uh, relations in the company. I married uh, the daughter of one of the agents in the company. You know, so it became a family affair for me uh, relatively quickly as well. Uh, but, long story short, you know, I worked harder that first year than I've ever worked, that I even knew was possible to work, so that I could hold my head up among these guys who were some of the um, objectively best insurance professionals in the country. Uh, won awesome. awards every single year, uh, did really amazing things, designed products, you know all that sort of thing. and i was I was humbled to be around them, and i wanted to I wanted to deserve that. I wanted to to, you know, to earn my place amongst uh, their ranks. And so that was good. And they were fabulous. And they let me kind of go crazy and experiment over the next 15 years to invent the model that we have now. I don't run the day to day operations of that business. I have a team of uh, managers four managers who are stellar uh, at what they do. Uh, When I took my hands off the wheel three years ago, um, you know, they have increased uh, every metric by eight by to 10 X since I took my hands off the wheel. So maybe you could say that I was not very good at it and they are very good at it. And I, I don't care. Cause uh, I'm happy with those bigger numbers. So I'm totally happy letting them do their thing.
1: Did I hear you say 10 X guys uh, for those that don't know when, uh, when Trey says 10 X uh, he's saying that genuinely from Mr. Grant, Cardone himself. Those that don't know Grant Cardone, uh, Mr. 10 X himself. He actually called Trey Taylor, the smartest guy in the room, not once but two times. And if you're watching on YouTube, or if you're not watching on YouTube, he just held up a card directly from Grant Cardone. I assume that's some type of handwritten thank you card. Um, So again, Grant Cardone calls this guy the smartest guy in the room. Trey, I'm going to take a second. I know this is uh, my podcast where I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but I have a a secret that I wanted to share with you, um, which is uh, really more of a testimonial to Trey. Do you mind if I share it real quick? No, I'd love to hear it. So, and Tra- guys, Trey doesn't know this. Um, I've been holding it hostage because Uh-oh. it wasn't a done deal, um, but I wanted to hopefully give Trey the good news and I'm um, able to do so here live, exclusive for Mr. Trey Taylor. Uh, this when isn't Grant- a Mari Povich thing,
0: is it? You're going to yes, bring yeah, out right, some, your, yeah. your,
1: your third cousin's sister's brother come <laughs> out of the closet here. No, no. Um, uh, when Grant Cardone says he's the smartest guy in the room, uh, he means it guys. So I was, uh, I was chatting with, uh, Trey and a bunch of colleagues in a uh, clubhouse room on, um, it's a social media app. If you're not familiar, uh, and it's an audio only app. And, uh, I just happened to be a fly on the wall. I'm listening to Trey and, uh, other folks in the, um, uh, in the room as a consultant, uh, a consulting room, give advice. Uh, Grant was not in this room, this specific one. And, um, and I, um, I didn't even ask a question. I'm literally hearing Trey give advice and others give advice to folks asking questions. I don't know what the question was, but somebody said something to the effect of, hey, how do you know what to charge when you're looking to uh, uh, retain clients in a consulting type agreement, a retainer monthly agreement of some sort? Um, and Trey has no idea, but I was literally uh, about to talk to a potential, uh, another potential consulting client of mine, personally, uh, to be uh, the very next morning. Uh, so the timing, uh, the timeliness of that conversation was incredible. And long story short, Trey says to the person who was asking the question, basically something to the effect of, "Look." blah, 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 but whatever it is you are thinking about right in your head, right this second that you want to charge, whatever it is you're going to charge, double it. That's all he said, just double it, whatever it is. And he, he gave an example, if it's a thousand charge two, if it's five charge 10, if it's 20 charge 40, didn't matter. He just said, double it. And he used the example of it's gotta be something where you have trouble keeping a straight face when you're in person or on video, telling the other person what your fee is. It's got to be something where you kind of have trouble keeping a straight face because in your mind it is crazy absurd for you to say that type of number. Trey, I don't remember if you know this story or or, or remember this, I should say. So I'm yeah, I remember to, that room. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening to Trey tell this story, and uh, I won't share the specifics, but I had in my na- in my uh, it was written down in the contract. Uh, it was in my mind exactly what I was going to do. And I was like, he's crazy. There's no way I can do that. This is absurd. I don't even know if they're going to be able to do this anyway. So flash forward to the next morning, I I specifically remember it's 11 a.m. conference call via Zoom, conferencing uh, in with the uh, chief, um, uh, the C-suite, the folks that make these decisions. And we've already had a few conversations and they come to me and they say, all right, Eric, brass tacks here, what's your fee? You've now evaluated the, uh, the scope of work, et cetera, et cetera. What do you got? And I was ready to say my number and then some light bulb went off in my mind to keep a straight face and just say what's on my mind. And without hesitation, without, um, without smiling or smirking, I looked right in the camera and I said, uh, double what I was going to say. And I not right. only doubled the number, I doubled the contract term. Because I was gonna do six months, I doubled it to 12 months. Flash forward, Uh, uh, a few minutes. The guy had no problem whatsoever. He looks in the camera. He goes, that sounds fair. We'll put some stuff together and see what we come back with. Uh, Here we are a month and a half after that or two months later, and we have a signed contract uh, with double Everything that I originally was going to do. So Trey, I don't have a bourbon with me and I'm not a drinker, but cheer <laughs> to you, my friend. Um, for those that don't believe me, that is a true life testimonial. A CEO only does uh, three things. And Trey, from a consulting perspective at Trinity Blue, is the man that you want to hire to give you advice. And that was just free advice right on Clubhouse. So, uh, Trey, what do you think, my friend?
0: Yeah, Eric, I'm so proud that you uh, that you took that leap and you did it. Uh, you know the quality of work that you're doing is no different based on the the price that you're you're pricing it out at. Right? You're still going to deliver tremendous value to them. You might as well collect your fair share of the value that you're creating. And when I work with consultants, which is a weird thing to be a consultant to consultants, but when I work with consultants, that's one of the things that we have to do is to sort of unanchor. Uh, people's pricing ability from their sense of uh, of self worth or worthiness or that sort of thing, um, you know, and really get them out there getting some good numbers because people feel really good when they pay the right price and get a lot of value. They don't feel good when they pay a low price, get a lot of value. They feel like they've ripped you off or something. Uh, so that's one of the things that we do uh, quite frequently. I just had a client go through a similar. Uh, thing where he was wanting to launch a new consulting product. And he told me the price and I said, we, we got to triple that price. He couldn't get there. So I said, okay, the first three clients, this is what we're going to do. And I can't remember the numbers. Let's say it was $2,500 a month is where he wanted to start. So the first guy we sold at 2,500 a month. The next guy we sold at 5,000 a month. The next guy we sold at 7,500 a month. And then he realized that he could make a lot of money and do really stellar work. You know what he did with that extra money? He hired somebody else on his team to provide increasing value to the clients. So it's, it's a great circle. And uh, I'm, I'm just beaming that you, uh, that you were able to use a piece of advice like that. And that's the kind of work that we do. That's what we try to do is, to, is just make people better.
1: Well, I will get you the original audio and video of that part, because uh, we're probably not going to put that out on clips, to be very honest with you, because this is supposed to be about you. But I wanted to share it with you and the audience, uh, and you can use that any way you want, my friend. By yeah, I appreciate means. that. Yeah, great. Um, so let me, uh, as we finish up, I got two questions for you. Number one, um, a CEO only does three things, get it on Amazon, but... I don't know. To me, it sounds like you're setting yourself up for the next book, a CFO, a COO, a C something only does three things. Uh, most authors I've had on and interviewed um, tell me that they're already in the uh, thought process of another book, a follow up to a bestseller. Has that already crossed your mind?
0: Yeah, uh, of course it has. And, and I did build uh, this book along a framework that would support some additional um, sort of outgrowth. I'll tell you the truth. Um, I would be really interested to write a COO or a CFO alongside somebody who thinks really deeply about those positions because by sure. nature, I'm a CEO. Um, but you know, our friend, uh, Cameron Harold, for example, who better to write a COO only does three things. And I keep threatening, uh, Cameron that I'm going to, that I'm going to talk to him about that. Uh, our mutual friend, John Rulin, of course, has said to from giftology has said that we should probably have a talk, uh. Um, so, you know, that's, that's sort of the thinking exactly right. That, uh, that we would have a COO, a CFO, a CMO only does three things. And these are those things. And, you know, basically giving sort of the job description for exceptional performance in those positions.
1: Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, stay tuned. Cause that, it sounds like something will happen in the, in the future by all means, Trey I'm going to ask you a question to, to wrap everything up. Um, yep. is there a difference or can there be a difference between a good CEO and a great, CEO.
0: Yeah, that's a good question Uh, and I get asked that sometimes so obviously the first answer is if you want to be a good CEO you got to buy and read the book, Uh, but if you want to be a a great CEO the last story in the book is about um, um, uh, Two things that great leaders do uh, that good leaders just don't quite connect to yet Um, and I go back to my sixth grade algebra teacher Mrs Brownlee uh, because she really embodied these two things uh, and the two things are uh, they precept gifts in others before people see them in themselves. Precept, mean, to perceive before, right? So, you know, the, the minute you meet someone, you can sort of tell that they're really good at this, but they may not see that in their own personal story. They may not see that in themselves when they dig deep, but we can see gifts in other people. It is not enough to just see that gift. Uh, the really great leader also does what I call uh, evocation. They evoke, they pull from within. The, the Latin there is ex to call from within. They call those gifts out into the world and make that person accountable for the gifts. And uh, in doing that, uh, Mrs. Brownlee, for example, was my, you know, like I said, my sixth grade uh, algebra teacher. And she made me run for student council one time, uh, which was not the sexiest thing in the world, you know, to do. I'd want to be the captain of the football team, not the the student council guy or what have you. But, you know, she came in and said, you have a gift for this and you really need to be pursuing this. And and true to nature, I did have a gift for it and she called it out and it's been a big part of my life uh, since I was in the sixth grade, for example. Um, the chairman of my board used to work with Jack Welch. He, he joined GE the same month that Jack Welch did. They were contemporaries. Now, Jack, of course, spent his entire career at GE. My chairman went and did other, um, other career paths but uh, what he remembered most about Jack was as a peer Jack would walk into a room slap you on the shoulder and say Eric you're the best plastics salesperson the Great Lakes region has ever seen and you should really keep that up because you'll end your career running a great plastics manufacturer around the world or something like that you saying that as a 26 28 year old guy to other 26 and 28 year old guys And um, that's what people remembered about Jack Welch when he died, was that he reached inside me and pulled out a gift that I didn't even know I had back then. So here's the good news for anybody listening today. You don't have to be a CEO to use these two gifts. We all have the ability to go find somebody who's doing something in the world and to call out an appreciation of that gift inside them. You can do it five times before you sit down to dinner tonight. Uh, It's a very simple thing to do. It just takes courage. To reach into somebody and say, "I think you're doing an amazing job, Starbucks barista," and it's obvious to me that you care very much about the quality of work, the quality of product that you produce. If you keep that up, I think you'll you'll be successful in whatever you happen to do for the rest of your life. And uh, those kinds of little blessings, those mitzvahs, if you will, as we go through life, you know, those little blessings uh, should be uh, should be on our minds all the time. Because we can create um, a really wonderful world by loving on people in that way. So that's what I think the definition or the difference is between a good and a great leader, good and a great CEO.
1: Well, you know, I don't know if anybody listening or if you, Trey, are a uh, Howard Stern fan, good, better, and different. But that is the moment where Howard, in an interview, I'm no Howard, would say, you've said it all. I have nothing more to add. So with that, Trey, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. It's been incredible. I love catching up with you. I hope you appreciate my story. I can't thank you enough. Yeah. Uh, for those, uh, one more reminder, Go get it, bestseller on Amazon, a CEO only does three things, finding your focus in the C-suite by bestselling author, Trey Taylor. Uh, I am in the book because I got an advanced copy and I was able to give him a good quote for the book. Uh, And the forward is by Shark Tank's very own Kevin Harrington, who's become a good friend of Trey. And remember Grant Cardone himself called Trey, the smartest uh, guy in the room, not once, but two times. So Trey, for uh, I just show up and hit record, man. You know that. You know how lazy <laughs> I am when it comes to a lot of the back office stuff, which I think that makes me a good CEO, right? Yeah, right. I yeah. outsource like crazy. So for everybody behind the scenes at the Rockstars Rockin' podcast, I'm Eric Silverman. That's Trey Taylor. And this has been another Rockin' episode. And we look forward to uh, having you join us next week when we're no doubt going to have another rock star to join us here on the show. Thanks, Trey.
0: Thanks, Eric. Great to be with you. Really appreciate the uh, kind words and the, and the great story that you shared. Made my day.
1: You got it. Thanks, brother. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Rockstars Rocking Podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you consume podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. Five stars would totally rock. Until next time, Rockstars, keep rocking.